This week on Myths and Legends, it's our first foray into stories from India, where you'll learn that being a bouncer is either the best or worst job in the universe, depending on if you let that group of kids in. Also, you'll learn a shortcut to superpowers. Stop working out or moving at all, and don't drink water for 100 years. The creature this week is an angry bird, who is slightly more intense than the ones from the game, mainly because he wants to gorge himself on his enemy's blood. This is Myths and Legends, episode 114A, Calamity. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. So yeah, we're finally here. We are finally covering a story from India. I know I say this all the time, but there is no one version of these stories. Parts of them are legends, parts of them are religious stories, and parts of them are folklore. I tried as best I could to make it a coherent story, but know that these stories are wildly different depending on who's telling them. India and South Asia in general are wonderfully diverse and interesting, so there are multiple different, equally valid versions of these stories. I picked what appear to be the most common tellings, so please forgive any inaccuracies. I know they'll be there. These have been by far the most challenging episodes. I've been researching them for weeks, have read nearly 1,000 pages, and I barely feel like I'm scratching the surface. Anyway, let's get started. By now, Jaya and Vijaya were having a pretty solid eternity. They had a great gig with an even better view. I mean, they were the gatekeepers to Vaikuntha, the place of eternal bliss, the celestial abode of Vishnu. As the gatekeepers, they held a short list on who could, and who could not, see Vishnu. And these kids? These kids weren't on the list. True, they were adorable. These little five-year-olds dressed in monk robes, but Jaya and Vijaya weren't really even sure how they got here. It's not like this place was easy to reach. Go to the peak of Mount Maru, then go straight up for about 200 million kilometers. Most people who made it to this place were the faithful, but these kids hadn't been around long enough to be one of them. Jaya and Vijaya looked at each other before shaking their heads and turning back to the four boys before them. Sorry, Vishnu couldn't see them today. Feel free to exit back the way they came. Maybe it was a fun slide back to Earth. They didn't know. They'd never been. But the kids didn't move. Jaya and Vijaya shrugged. Okay. Sure, be like that. But they weren't getting in. The kids shook their heads in unison. Vaikuntha was open to any devotees. The pair of gatekeepers stared at the stubborn kids, who refused to move an inch. First Jaya began to second-guess himself. Then Vijaya. At the last second, it was Jaya who managed to utter a, Oh no. Right before the league kid opened his mouth. It turned out that they weren't children at all. They were, in fact, the sons of the creator god, Brahma. The firstborns of a god who kind of held equal status with Vishnu. The foursome had been created to help with, well, creation, but instantly refused, devoting themselves instead to Vishnu and celibacy. At age four, they learned the Vedas, and, because of their spiritual virtues, remained in that form, wandering the universes without any desire beyond teaching others. And so, basically, 
this was very bad news for Jaya and Vijaya. Frozen in place, Jaya and Vijaya didn't dare open their mouths, as the four Kumaras, as they were called, finished explaining this entire backstory. For their disrespect of the ageless super-god children, they would be visiting Earth. Actually, they would be cursed to mortality. And when they died, they would be reborn as people, as mortals, forever. I guess when four adorable super-children insist they're on the list, they're on the list. Jaya and Vijaya began to wonder if the kids could actually do that. But the crushing pain of mortality quickly informed them that yes, yes they could. The gatekeepers looked back on Vakuntha, Vishnu's abode, and wept. But they had an idea. Pushing through the gates they guarded, Jaya and Vijaya went to find their god. Eons catching up to them at once, Jaya and Vijaya found him and collapsed at his feet. They had only a few scant minutes left. Quickly, they told him all about the children and the curse, and how they couldn't stand the pain of being eternally separated from Vishnu. Vishnu looked down at them with deep sympathy and understanding. Unfortunately, he would not be able to lift the curse. The pair of gatekeepers would die and be reborn as humans, living lifetimes on Earth. He couldn't change it, but there was something that he could do. They would be able to return to him. After how long, though? Well, that was their choice. The pair smiled as best they could. A choice? Yes. Jaya and Vijaya could either live seven lifetimes as normal people with normal lives, devotees of Vishnu, or they could live three lifetimes as his foe. They would be strong and vicious and evil, and they would wage war against Vishnu and his people. Both the gatekeepers knew what they had to do. Spend seven lifetimes away from Vishnu? It wasn't possible, and they refused. Instead, they both elected to three lifetimes as Vishnu's foe. And so, as the life faded from them, they enjoyed the presence of Vishnu one final time, and prayed that, over the course of the three lifetimes, they wouldn't lose too much of themselves on their journey back home. Hearing Akashipu stood at the shore, a single step back from the very place his brother had died. He wasn't going to cry. Not again. All those tears were gone. As happens from time to time, a woman and a sage conceived a child at dusk, and that child turned out to be a demon who dragged the earth goddess into the primordial ocean in an attempt to murder her and bring eternal darkness to the earth. It went well until it didn't. When hearing Yaksha, the brother, blocked an avatar of Vishnu from diving down and rescuing her. Hearing had stood on the beach and watched as Vishnu beheaded his brother. He saw his brother wash ashore. The tide dimmed red by his blood. In that moment, he had sworn vengeance, even if that meant becoming the very monster everyone said his brother had been. Even if it meant making war with the Devas. Even if it meant killing a god. Okay, real quickly, hearing Akashipu, from now on, I'm just going to call him H. I'm sure everyone who knows the actual pronunciation of that name is thanking me. And so, months later, H wrapped a cloak around his face and set out. Somewhere in the Himalayas, he climbed higher and higher, arriving at last at a cave. 
Over the next several years, he fasted, prayed, and lived in austerity. His body withered away as, day after day, year after year, he inched closer to the gods. He stopped eating, of course, but he also stopped drinking water. He stopped moving, and ants came from the ground and ate his flesh. Worms crawled through him. Still, he prayed and meditated, knowing that he was calling out to the one person, the one being, who could pull him out of this and make him so much more. Finally, it was done. Brahma, who, according to some traditions, is one of the three beings of the Godhead, and nearly equal to Vishnu, came down for him. He almost missed him, too, on account of all the anthills. But when he found the man, now little more than bones and scraps of flesh, he awoke H. Brahma's swan airplane swooped in for a landing, and H's eyes snapped open. Brahma was impressed. H had done, through sheer force of will, what even the most dedicated sages had failed to do. Arise, and get your reward. H gasped, and watched in awe as about five years of intense bodybuilding training transformed his frame in just five seconds. First his arms, then legs, then chest. Everything exploded from the dirt. It was said he was now so strong that he could, quote, withstand a lightning bolt. His beautiful body had the luster of molten gold. He stood full height, probably having torn through his meditation robes Hulk style and bowed low before Brahma. Brahma announced that that was a freebie, you're welcome. He had a soft spot for people who tried to achieve enlightenment through austerity, and the formerly young man's ability to go without water for 100 years while ants ate his flesh, well, that was one of the most impressive attempts he had ever seen. So, he was going to do something for H. Whatever H asked of him, H could get. Go. H grinned. He'd been ready for this question. He had spent the last several decades watching his body wither for the chance to answer this question. He wanted complete and irrevocable immortality. Ooh, yeah, mm. No, no. Sorry, bud, Brahma replied, shaking his head. That was really the one wish he couldn't grant. The last time he granted Bean's immortality, it was these two people that had formed from clumps of Vishnu's sentient earwax while he slept. They lived for thousands of years and became the demonic scourges of the Devas until they were tricked into dying. It, it wasn't his best move. So no, he didn't do blanket immortality anymore. But he liked this kid, so he would let him ask something else. Knowing that permanent and complete immortality was a big ask, H had a backup strategy ready to go. And he asked for way too many things. He asked to not meet death from any entities Brahma had created, and, seen as in Hinduism, Brahma created the world and everything in it, that was a hefty list. H asked that he wouldn't die inside or outside of his residence, during the daytime or nighttime, on the ground or in the sky, or by any weapon. On a roll, he then expanded it, asking that he not meet death by any entity living or non-living, by demigod or demon or great snake. Personally, I would have led with great snake, but that's me. And then he asked that he have no living rival and be given sole lordship over all living entities. It's also mentioned in other works that he petitioned Shiva as well and earned unrivaled combat prowess, exceeding skill in every weapon and all the powers of the lesser gods. Brahma listened to these requests and, seeing as it wasn't technically a request for all-encompassing immortality, as there were some gaps in there that could be exploited in case of emergency, 
he imagined. That seemed like a pretty reasonable request. So Brahma granted it all. And, as the Himalayans shook under H's footsteps, he wondered if he had maybe made a mistake. Thundering back down the mountain, H arrived back home, to his palace. But by now, it was half-burned and completely ransacked. When she heard him, H's wife flew from the wreckage of the place in tears, embracing him, telling him it had been so long, and also why did he look like Arnold Schwarzenegger auditioning for Goldfinger? He stopped her and demanded to know what happened to his son. She took a deep breath and nodded. The Devas, the gods, had attacked their palace and tried to put them to death, but they had been protected. H nodded. Well, as long as he was safe and there was no follow-up to that sentence, everything would be fine. But the mother continued. They had been protected by Vishnu. What? H blurted. The mother continued again. A sage had come by, one by the name of Narada. The baby hadn't been born yet, but he had been saved by the sage's wisdom. He had been saved, but he had also been changed. No one could be exposed to that at such a young age and not be changed. Reluctantly, H's wife told him the location of the school. As H thundered closer, he saw his son sitting, meditating. Pralada, the boy, calmly opened his eyes and greeted his father. Hi there, king of demons. H said that he was Pralada's father. The boy said that he was both, and if he refused to see himself for what he was, he was farther gone than Pralada thought. H hissed that the boy had been corrupted by his enemy. The boy pitied his father, that he still thought in terms of friends and enemies. They were all just servants of the Godhead. H frowned. No. No, they weren't. That was like his whole point by going up on the mountain. And now, he was stronger than the gods. Not all of them, Pralada replied. H gritted his teeth and wrenched his son up from the ground. Pralada obeyed his father. It wasn't long before H had not only conquered almost the entire universe, as the texts say, but had earned the title of the King of Demons. It was after that that he decided that his son must die. He tried his best to instruct the boy in the right, i.e. the wrong way to live, but the boy was too far gone. Pralada started to corrupt the people sent to teach him, and H finally decided that he couldn't have the enemy living in his own household. The son that he had hoped for, back before receiving powers from Brahma, it seemed, had never been born after all. The day of Pralada's execution was a raucous one. With his new strength and abilities, H had spent years conquering not just the entire world, but heaven as well. Demigods knelt before him. And now, H resided in the heavens themselves. He was unconquerable. He saw the boy kneeling in the square as the elephants walked closer. Something stuck with H as he started to sober up a bit. It was the boy's parting words to him that he had conquered the whole world, but he wasn't able to conquer himself. He would always be a slave to his desires. H took another swig of wine and ordered his men to drive the elephants on. 
it was time to crush this weed that had been corrupting his garden of meticulously cultivated evil. He could almost feel the relief as the center elephant lifted his massive foot and brought it down hard on the boy. Then, however, the elephant yelped and fell over. The boy crouched there, unharmed. H stood and shook his head. No, no, no. Get that elephant back up. Bring another. Bring the whole team. He didn't care. That boy had to die. But the boy didn't die. No matter how many elephants the father brought out to crush the child, the boy remained, sitting calmly in the center of the square. It had been a long six months. After the first attempted murder, the boy was unceremoniously dragged to a cliff and thrown off of it. It took Prahlada the better part of a day to climb back up, but when he did, they forced poison into his mouth. After that, Prahlada guzzled what was left of the bottle, but nothing happened. After that, they tried to light him on fire, but he simply sat in the flames. They tried throwing him into a well, starving him, starving him in a well, enchantments, stabbing, they tried everything, but the boy weathered it all, serene. H invited his sister, an enchantress, to come and help out by sneakily setting him on fire, despite them already trying that one. In the end, she was set on fire, and he was found sitting in her ashes. Now, H sat across the room from his son, saying that they had both made mistakes. Prahlada refused to acknowledge his father as the supreme lord of the universe, and H had spent the better part of a year trying to murder him. You know, basically the same thing. Anyway, H was good to give his son a fun second chance. Just acknowledge his power, and they were good. It would be like the past year hadn't even happened. Prahlada asked his father if he was omnipresent, and all-pervading. H thought about it. In a sense, he was, but in another more accurate sense, no, he wasn't but no one was, and before Pallotta retorted like a broken record that Vishnu was, no, he wasn't. Like, this pillar here? Is Vishnu in the pillar? If H broke the pillar, would Vishnu come out of it? No, right? Pallotta replied that that, that's not how it works, but maybe? The glistening, golden king of the demons sauntered over to the pillar with a smirk, smashed it in a single blow, and screamed when a half-lion avatar of Vishnu was, in fact, in the pillar. Now, not only was H staring into Vishnu's full glory, but it was Vishnu's full glory combined with lion parts. And it was all the parts that counted, too. Basically sharp teeth and long claws. A lion mane, too, because why not, right? H tried to run, but the lion form, named Narshima, caught him, digging his claws deep into his back. It was then that H realized that it was twilight. It wasn't daytime or nighttime. The beast dragged him to the threshold of his house, where he was neither in nor out of his residence. The creature lifted H up onto his knee, so he wasn't on the ground or in the sky, and he used his claws, debatably not weapons, that one's a bit of a stretch in my opinion, to tear into H's belly. At that moment, H realized that Vishnu wasn't his adversary, for all this power, there was still unstoppable, inevitable fate. Despite everything he had tried to do, he was always destined to die here. He also realized something else. 
in the last fleeting moments before death took him, he saw it. A beautiful realm and a gate. It was a place he had once called home. A place he was trying to get back to. A place where... But in that instant, it was gone. And so was H. Vijaya, the other gatekeeper, had been killed by Vishnu all those years ago on the shore. Jaya had followed years later, but he did follow. Lives one of three were complete. Prahlada had seen his father's mistakes, and so when he was given his father's earthly kingdom, he only asked for one thing, when prompted by the lion form of Vishnu, that no desire may arise in his mind for anything. He had watched his father be consumed by his lust for food, drink, women, and power. He wouldn't make the same mistake. In his prayers, Prahlada remembered his father, and Prahlada made a good king. You know, I feel like this is a bad idea, but I'm just so impressed that, sure, what do you want? You know the old saying that, if it isn't broke, don't fix it? Well, Ravana was doing exactly that. He had heard, long ago, of a king by the name of Hiranyakashipu, or H as we just said. Despite Brahma's well-publicized rule of not giving people immortality, he had given H immortality. It had disastrous consequences to the universe and H in particular, but Ravana wasn't H. He had already battled gods like Krishna and others, and his body bore the marks of their weapons. And unlike H, he had survived. Now, he was walking in H's footsteps by asking for a gift from Brahma after years of penance. Unfortunately, H really raised the bar for this one. So simply becoming an emaciated pile of bones while worms and ants actively ate what was left of your body, well, that suddenly wasn't good enough. Luckily, Ravana had an ace up his sleeve. And that ace, of course, was a sword. Ravana had 10 heads, 20 arms, and a fun little trick. If you cut off any one of his heads, another grew back. So he spent years doing exactly that, cutting off all of his heads. When at last Brahma descended and offered him a boon for his penance, he, of course, asked boldly for immortality. As expected, that was rejected out of hand. Oh well, he had to ask. Instead, he would be content with absolute invulnerability from and supremacy over gods, other demons, serpents, and wild animals. Seeing as he had already battled gods and come out only slightly scathed, Ravana didn't seek invulnerability from normal humans. It's like we as people wouldn't ask for invulnerability from gnats, or like an acer asking invulnerability from mistletoe. They're just not a threat. Brahma lit up with excitement. Oh, oh, he spotted it. He found the loophole for this one and you could drive a truck through it. Because it was so obvious, he decided to toss in some super strength and knowledge of divine weapons and magic. Gotta keep things interesting. Now, Ravana was the demon king of Sri Lanka, far to the south, so he had a long walk home. A walk that took him by Mount Kailash, the home of Shiva. A tiny monkey stopped Ravana on the road, saying that the road was off limits here. Private party. Shiva was hunting. Well, Ravana didn't care what Shiva the destroyer and transformer, one of the principal deities of Hinduism who lived an aesthetic life on Mount Kailash, was doing. 
he was going to pass. The monkey held up a digit. Uh, Ravana's way of weaving exposition in with his dialogue was clunky at best, but he could pass if he wanted to. But then he'd have Shiva to deal with. Ravana sneered, lowering his heads to the monkey's height. He had some shiny new invulnerability he wanted to try out anyway. Oh, that mountain there? Shiva's home? Yeah, that looked nice. He was going to take it back home to Sri Lanka. With that, Ravana picked the mountain up by its roots and immediately set it back down. Surprised, Ravana looked down and saw a massive pinky toe on his chest. Shiva was home. Now, invulnerability just meant that he couldn't die or be hurt. Not that he couldn't be pinned under a pinky toe for 1,000 years. Maybe experiencing a bit of Stockholm Syndrome, or maybe just getting tired of being pinned under a god's littlest toe. While a monkey laughed at him, Ravana became a devoted Shiva follower. And his devotion began with a bit of a show. And a lot of pain. Remember how Ravana had 20 arms? Well, soon he was down to 19, after he tore off an arm and used his own muscle sinews to make a stringed instrument, with which he sang strained praises to Shiva. I'm not sure what Ravana's name was before this whole predicament, but this is where he earned the name Ravana, after his shrill cry. Feeling pretty stiff after being pinned for a millennia, Ravana returned home to his kingdom, but he found that he wasn't the only person in his family who was missing something. So, there was a hero in the West, a man by the name of Rama, who was rumored to be another avatar of Vishnu. He had been cast out of his kingdom by his sneaky stepmother, and he and his wife, Sita, had been traveling in the wilderness when Supernaka, Ravana's sister, found them. In addition to having blue skin and probably being a god incarnate, Rama was also pretty good looking, so much so that Supernaka stood before him on the road and tried to seduce Rama and get him to cheat on Sita. Since that plan was flawed in several ways, Rama politely refused and continued on. Rama's youngest brother, however, felt like this wasn't quite enough, and so he grabbed Supernaka by the hair and cut off her nose and ears. Not surprisingly, Ravana had some pretty strong opinions about the treatment of his sister, and some new powers to boot, so he decided to pay this little wandering group a visit. Fortunately for Ravana, but unfortunately for nearly everyone else, Ravana found Sita first, apart from the group. So, don't be mad, but you know how I was going to avenge you? Ravana asked. Uh-huh, Supernaka, Ravana's sister, nodded. Well, I did, kind of. Instead of attacking Rama, I kidnapped his wife. Oh, nice. We're going to cut her nose and ears off too? Supernaka asked, getting excited. Yeah, kinda. And by kind of, I mean no. I'm going to marry her. Supernaka frowned. And how does that help me? Ravana took a step forward, smiling hesitantly. Well, how does cutting her nose off help you? Look, we're demon siblings. The fact that I went at all is noteworthy. Now, please, I just want you to be at my wedding. When a demon king marries his first kidnapped bride, that's a big day, sis. Reluctantly, the sister agreed, and the wedding planning began. 
but then abruptly stopped. You see, Sita, the human wife of Rama, was human. As such, Ravana wasn't invulnerable from her attacks. He learned this the first time she slapped him in the face. He threatened her, but she knew he was bluffing. He wanted to marry her. He wasn't going to hurt her, and if he did, awesome. She would rather die than be married to him anyway. Ravana barked in rage, but there was nothing he could do. Nothing but try to convince her. And he really laid on the charm. Still, not being able to leave really kind of starts you in the negative when it comes to trying to get someone to love you. Sita fought against him for a year until the enemies were at the gate. Well, Ravana's enemies. They were Sita's friends. It was her husband and his army. Ravana laughed and dove into the fray, magical weapons in all of his 19 hands. Rama waited toward the back, watching the ten-headed demon mowing through his men. He lined up his bow and arrow, and he took the shot. It hit Ravana right in the center head. Well, neck, actually. The arrow was so powerful that it took the head completely off. But Ravana kept moving, and Rama watched in horror as the head grew back. Rama fired arrow after arrow, taking off head after head as Ravana inched closer, slaughtering his soldiers. But the heads kept growing back, and Ravana kept coming. Then, Rama had an idea. Initially, he dismissed it for being way too obvious and easy, but Operation Off With His Head wasn't working, and as a mortal legendary hero, he was really running out of options. He fired one of his magic arrows at Ravana's body. It, of course, was a powerful magic arrow that always returned, and it did so because it had some pretty intense follow-through, in that it went through its targets, completely circumnavigated the globe, and returned to Rama's quiver. The arrow hit him in the chest and exploded out the back, and Ravana looked down to see the gaping hole. He took one step closer and staggered. The wound wasn't healing. He was dying. Brahma was right. Not making himself invulnerable to humans, that was an insanely massive oversight. He dropped into the battlefield, and Rama's warriors parted. A vision flashed. Something he had once known, but lost. A feeling that he had been in this place before. And even though he had fallen, it was what was supposed to happen. That this thing, this demon, wasn't who he was. That he was going home. He saw the face of Vijaya, and he almost recognized it this time. He cried out that he'd tried to do better. He tried to be better this time, before the darkness took him. Lives two of three were complete. And he actually had done better this time. It's said that even though he was a demon king who kidnapped and tried to coerce a woman into marrying him, well, he was benevolent and just to his own people. During his reign, there was very little crime and everyone had enough food and money for happy, prosperous lives. As for Vijaya this time around, he was a brother of Ravana, but I didn't know really where to bring him in. He was actually a pretty pious, intelligent, and well-liked jovial demon named Kumbhakarna. He was so powerful and intelligent that he was feared by the gods. So they offered him a wish too and tricked him into asking for eternal sleep. 
Ravana pleaded with Brahma, who mitigated the damage, making it so that Kumbhakarna only slept for six months out of the year. The war with Rama came while he was asleep. So Kumbhakarna woke to find elephants walking across his giant body. He told his brother that he was in the wrong in this war, but because they were brothers, he would fight alongside the man. He, too, was killed by Rama, wallowing in grief over his dead brother. Also, it said that he killed and ate many monkeys in his time, only to show his power. So, if you're looking for a good way to assert your authority, there you go. Next week, we'll wrap up the story of Jaya and Vijaya with a tale that I intended to tell when I started researching this episode. It just grew and grew and became way more interesting. Anyway, it's the epic story of the third and final lives. I want to say thanks to Burke5071, Kalaya18, Ange Brennell, ProShop2, Texacat, The Sea Green Fox, James Summerfield, Lindsay the Best, Rafaru, Anastasia Versus, Mirniism, and Aiden10 Poop Emoji <laughs> for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for leaving a review. It's great to hear from you. And if you'd like to help the show out and leave a review, you can find the show at apple.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Hema, from Arabian folklore. The Hema is an angry bird, and you would be too if you were murdered. Now, I know I don't need to say this, but don't murder. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it is a profoundly uncool thing to do. Pretty much every religion and system of government has rules against it. Oh, and it will create a very angry bird that will hunt after you until it consumes your blood. The Hema is a gray bird, about the size of a German shepherd, their talons are four inches long and filed to a point, though don't ask me who is doing revenge bird manicures, I have no idea. They really just have one thing on their mind, consuming the blood of the one who spilled theirs. They are born from the blood of someone who has been murdered, and finding and killing the person who killed them is really the only thing on their to-do list. Their cry, which is the likely mispronounced Iskuni, sounds like a child screaming, give me blood. You know, if you needed something to help out your nightmares. The creature is helpful too, and they will cry out if they see a murder about to happen. So if you're walking along and hear what sounds like a child screaming, give me blood, I know you don't need much extra incentive to run in that situation, but yeah, run. Once the Hema has tracked down their killer and enjoyed a uh, nice long drink, it will head home to a party in the land of the spirits. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.